On December 29, 1940, a year before the United States entered the Second World War, President Franklin Roosevelt declared the United States to be an arsenal of democracy. When the U.S. finally did enter the war, they faced a serious problem. The population of men who would normally be called upon to work in the factories were now being sent off to war. The solution to the problem proved to be incredibly simple. Learn more about Rosie the Riveter and women on the home front during the Second World War on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. If you look at the big picture... The primary thing that the United States brought to the table in World War II wasn't soldiers, it was equipment. At some point in the late 19th century, the United States surpassed the United Kingdom as the world's largest economy. As the country industrialized in the first several decades of the 20th century, it managed to avoid much of the devastation which afflicted Europe during the First World War. When the Second World War started, many of the industrialized nations of Europe either completely went offline or were severely restricted due to U-boat attacks on supply ships. The United States began supplying the Allies in 1939 and 1940, which is why FDR called America the arsenal of democracy. The U.S. had a massive advantage over every other belligerent country in the war. For starters, the U.S. was protected by two giant oceans from all of the fighting and destruction taking place in Europe and Asia. This meant that they were protected from raids or strategic bombing attacks, which could target industrial centers. And secondly, the U.S. was a really big country with a large amount of land. 
Perhaps most importantly, the United States in the 1940s was self-sufficient in all the raw materials necessary for heavy industry. This included iron, coal, oil, aluminum, timber, and food. Assuming you could put a naval blockade on the country, which would be impossible, it'd be pretty meaningless as they had everything that they needed, especially if you included trade with Canada and Mexico. Starting with the Lend-Lease Act in March of 1941, the United States, even though it wasn't yet in the war, dramatically increased the supplies and arms it sent to several countries, primarily the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union. When the U.S. entered the war later that year, everything suddenly changed. The number of planes, tanks, ships, and everything else that was needed skyrocketed. Not only were they needed to support the American war effort, but also to continue to keep supplying the Allies as well. For example, the amount of Lend-Lease equipment the U.S. sent to the Soviets increased almost tenfold from 1941 to 1942, and was 20 times larger at its peak in 1944. As American industry shifted from a peacetime economy to a wartime economy, they faced a serious problem. More industrial output required more workers. However, most of the workforce in the 1940s, especially in heavy industry, were men. Men were now joining the military to go and fight overseas. So where were they going to get the necessary labor to build the tanks and ships and planes required for the war effort? The answer was sitting right in front of them. Women. The introduction of women into the workforce, especially in industrial jobs, wasn't something that happened overnight. There was cultural resistance to having women work at some jobs that were traditionally held by men. And also, it took time for the war economy to ramp up. Not all men were enlisted into military service immediately. In 1940, there were 14.6 million women who comprised 29% of the American workforce. This was the workforce in what was basically the last year of the Great Depression. In 1941, the percentage increased to 31% with 16 million women in the workforce. The United States didn't enter the war until the end of that year, so this increase still didn't represent the full war effort. In 1942, as things began to ramp up, 3.5 million more women entered the workforce, raising the number to 19.4 million women, representing 36% of the workforce. In the first half of 1942, the number of jobs that were deemed acceptable for women went from 29% to 85%. By 1943, the war effort was in full gear, and there were labor shortages all over the country. U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson began the Get Women to Work campaign. The purpose, as he stated, was to, quote, fully utilize immediately and effectively the largest and potentially finest single source of labor available today, the vast reserve of woman power, end quote. That year, the number of women in civilian jobs hit 20.5 million, representing about 37% of the workforce. And it wasn't just a matter of the number of women in the workforce, it was what they were doing. The need for labor overwhelmed the resistance to women taking jobs that were traditionally reserved for men. Women were becoming welders, sheet metal cutters, heavy machinery operators, and of course, riveters. Getting women to take these jobs did take some cajoling. The American War Manpower Campaign issued propaganda posters to get women to take these jobs. One of their promotional campaigns said, quote, If you've used an electric mixer in your kitchen, you can learn to run a drill press. In 1943, 65% of the workforce involved in the construction of aircraft were now women. While women in these manufacturing positions got most of the attention, this wasn't where the majority of women worked. Women took jobs across the board everywhere there were positions available. Women even filled in by playing professional sports. 
the All-American Girls Baseball League was established in the Midwest, which was highlighted in the movie A League of Their Own. While many of the women who took jobs were younger and unmarried, there were also plenty of women who had children. Women would create childcare arrangements with their neighbors so that the kids were looked after while they were at work. Women didn't just take jobs in the civilian economy. There were 350,000 women who joined the military and served in various roles, including the Women Air Force Service Pilots, also known as WASPs. The embodiment of the female industrial worker during the war was initially called Windy the Welder. Women who worked in civilian roles for the government became known as government girls. However, in 1942, a song was written by Red Evans and John Jacob Loeb called Rosie the Riveter. There were several versions of the song which were recorded, but the version which really took off was the 1943 recording by a group known as the Four Vagabonds. After that, Wendy the Welder was forgotten and Rosie the Riveter became the new face of working women during the war. And I should note that there was no actual Rosie the Riveter. Rosie was sort of like G.I. Joe. It was just a generic name that embodied all the working women of the era. That being said, just like Uncle Sam or Lady Liberty, there were personifications of Rosie the Riveter. Norman Rockwell painted an image of Rosie with her rivet gun and goggles, which was on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. The model for the image was a 19-year-old named Mary Louise Doyle from Vermont, who was actually a telephone operator and not a riveter. Perhaps the most famous image which has become associated with Rosie the Riveter was a 1943 poster created by J. Howard Miller called We Can Do It. It features the image of a woman with her sleeve rolled up and her arm flexed. Oddly enough, at the time, the image was not associated with Rosie the Riveter. Even though it is the image most associated with Rosie today, that association really didn't occur until the 1980s when the poster was rediscovered. The woman in the poster was based on a photo taken of one Naomi Parker, who worked on the aircraft assembly line at the Naval Air Station in Alameda, California. She was 21 or 22 years old when the photo was taken, and she passed away in 2018 at the age of 96. In 1944, the percentage of women in the civilian workforce reached its wartime peak of 37%, a level that wouldn't be seen again until the 1970s. In 1945, things began winding down, and the percentage of women in the workforce dropped down to 33%. When the war ended, the government reversed course and began to discourage women from working so that jobs would be available for soldiers as they returned home from the war. Even though female participation in the workforce returned to pre-war levels, not all of the Rosies left the workforce. Some of them stayed on the job for years. In particular, one woman named Eleanor Otto was hired as a riveter in 1942 to construct airplanes. She returned to industry in 1951 and remained on the job until she was laid off in 2014, at the age of 95. At the time she retired, involuntarily I might add, she was involved in the construction of every C-17 transport plane ever made. At the time of this recording, she is still going strong at the age of 103, and there is a bar named after her in Long Beach, California. Today, you can visit the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historic Park located just outside of San Francisco at the former location of a shipyard for Liberty Ships. The Second World War was the first time an industrial nation saw wide-scale participation of women in the workforce, especially in industrial and manufacturing jobs. It wasn't just a period of high participation of women in the workforce, but also the same period which saw the largest number of ships and planes constructed in history. 
World War II was won with weapons provided by the arsenal of democracy, and many of those weapons were built by the women collectively known as Rosie the Riveter. The executive producer of Everything Everywhere Daily is Charles Daniel. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. I just want to thank everyone, including the show's producers, who support the show over on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, just head over to Patreon.com, which is currently the only place where you can get show merchandise. Also, if you want to talk to other listeners about the show, head over to our Facebook group or Discord server, both of which have links in the show notes. All the day long, weather rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie. The Riveter keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage, sitting up there on the fuselage. That little friend can do more than a male can do, Rosie. The Riveter, Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie. Charlie, he's a Marine. Rosie is protecting Charlie, working overtime on the riveting machine. When they gave her a production knee. She was as proud as a girl could be. There's something true about red, white, and blue about Rosie. The Riveter 